New York, this is Democracy Now! The city of Jackson, even when we're not under a boil water notice, even when we're not contending at that present moment with low pressure, that we are in a constant state of emergency. In the majority black city of Jackson, Mississippi, more than 180,000 area residents are on their third day without running water. Officials say the crisis could last indefinitely. We'll get an update from Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba and longtime activist Kalia Kunov, co-founder of Cooperation Jackson. Then to Iraq, where dozens were killed in fighting Monday after a powerful Iraqi cleric, Muqtad al-Sadr, announced he's resigning. Armed supporters have now started to withdraw from Baghdad's green zone. The end of violence and clashes and gunshots is necessary and important to spare the blood of Iraqis, but it does not mean the end of the political crisis that has been persistent in the country for months. We'll go to Baghdad to speak with Yanar Mohammed, president of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. Then on the last day of Black August, as President Biden hits the campaign trail and calls for an assault weapons ban and more funding for police, we'll speak to UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly about the 20th anniversary edition of his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. I tried to turn to history to unearth how radical movements imagine the future and make a case for the politics of love. And literally, I know that 20 years later, that's what activists are doing right now. You know, they're turning freedom dreams into a practice, turning it from a noun to a verb, And I think what we're seeing in the face of fascist threat is a flowering of the new freedom dreams. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The White House has approved a federal emergency declaration for Mississippi over the water crisis in the state capital of Jackson, where the city's overwhelmingly black population is without running water for a third day. Torrential rains caused the Pearl River to overtop its banks, flooding a water treatment plant, cutting off water supplies indefinitely to 180,000 area residents. On Tuesday, Mississippi activated its National Guard to distribute water to tens of thousands of Jackson residents who've been dealing with water issues for years, due in part to underfunding from the state government. We'll speak with Shokwe Antalamumba, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, after headlines. A new filing by the Justice Department shows federal prosecutors believe former President Donald Trump may have hidden and moved classified papers at his Mar-a-Lago estate in an effort to mislead investigators seeking to recover the documents. In a new 36-page filing, Justice Department counterintelligence chief Jay Bratt writes, quote, The government also developed evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation, unquote. In the new filing, the Justice Department included a photo showing a number of documents marked top secret spread out on a carpet.
The new filing also calls into question earlier efforts by Trump's legal team to voluntarily return the classified documents. As part of the filing, the Justice Department urged against the appointment of a special master to review the seized documents, saying it, quote, is unnecessary and would significantly harm important governmental interests, including national security interests, unquote. In news from Ukraine, a team of nuclear inspectors with the International Atomic Energy Agency have left Kyiv and are headed for the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia power plant, Europe's largest nuclear power station. In recent weeks, Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of attacking the plant, sparking fears of a radiation disaster. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi spoke earlier today in Kyiv. We are now uh, finally moving. Six months of uh, strenuous uh, efforts. The IEA is moving in to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. As you know, we have a very, very important uh, task uh, there uh, to perform, uh, to assess the real situation uh, there, uh, to help uh, stabilize the situation as much as we can. The European Union is sending Ukraine 5.5 million tablets of iodine to protect against radiation. In more news from Ukraine, a ship carrying Ukrainian grain has docked in Djibouti, Africa, for the first time in months. The grains expected to be taken overland to northern Ethiopia, but renewed fighting in the Tigray region may jeopardize the plan. The World Food Program recently reported 22 million people in Somalia, Kenya and Ethiopia are at risk of starvation, as the region faces its worst drought in 40 years. The World Food Program's Mike Dunford said the region's in desperate need of more grain shipments from Ukraine and Russia. What to see is more food flowing. We need, from WFP's perspective, millions of tons in this region. In Ethiopia alone, three quarters of everything that we used to distribute originated from Ukraine and Russia. In other news related to the war in Ukraine, Germany is accusing Russia of weaponizing energy supplies after the Russian energy giant Gazprom announced a three-day shutdown of gas supplies to Germany. Gazprom said the shutdown was needed to address technical issues with the Nord Stream 1 pipeline tied to sanctions imposed by the West. Former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev has died in Moscow at the age of 91. He led the Soviet Union from 1985 until its dissolution in 1991. He's been widely credited with bringing down the Iron Curtain, helping to end the Cold War and reducing the risk of nuclear war by signing key arms agreements with the U.S., including the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. In 1990, Gorbachev won the Nobel Peace Prize. On December 25, 1991, Gorbachev announced his resignation just days before the Soviet Union dissolved. In this situation, which follows the establishment of the Commonwealth of Independent States, I hereby cease to act as President of the Soviet Union. 
U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, quote, Mikhail Gorbachev was a one-of-a-kind statesman who changed the course of history. The world has lost a towering global leader, committed multilateralist and tireless advocate for peace, unquote. In Moscow, a top Kremlin spokesperson described Gorbachev as an extraordinary person, but said his romanticism about rapprochement with the West was not justified. There are reports in Russian media that Gorbachev will not receive a state funeral. Russian President Vladimir Putin has called the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres is warning the world is sleepwalking toward the destruction of the planet. He made the comment in a plea for nations to help Pakistan recover from devastating floods that have left a third of the country underwater and have killed more than 1,100 people and displaced 33 million. The government of Pakistan has asked for the international community's help. Let us work together to respond quickly and collaboratively to this colossal crisis. Let us all step up in solidarity and support to the people of Pakistan in their hour of need. Let's stop sleepwalking towards the destruction of our planet by climate change. Today, it is Pakistan. Tomorrow, it could be your country. Pakistani officials estimate the flooding has damaged or destroyed one million homes and washed away over 2,000 miles of roads. In addition, authorities say about a million animals have died. Six million people in Afghanistan are at risk of famine. That's according to the United Nations, which is trying to raise $770 million to help Afghans before winter. This comes as calls grow for the Biden administration to unfreeze $7 billion of Afghan money held in the United States. U.N. humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths addressed the U.N. General Assembly Tuesday. Close to 19 million people are facing acute levels of food insecurity, including 6 million people at risk of famine. More than half of the population, some 24 million people, need humanitarian assistance, and an estimated 3 million children are acutely malnourished. They include over 1 million children estimated to be suffering from the most severe, life-threatening form of malnutrition. Without specialized treatment, these children could die. In South Carolina, lawmakers in the Republican-led House have approved a near-total ban on abortion, except in cases of pregnancies caused by rape or incest. Meanwhile, in Indiana, abortion clinics have sued to block Indiana's near-total abortion ban, which is set to go into effect September 15th. Clinics say the law, quote, will infringe on Hoosiers' right to privacy and violate Indiana's guarantee of equal privileges, unquote. Life expectancy in the United States has plummeted for a second year in a row, due in part to the coronavirus pandemic. It's the sharpest two-year drop in nearly a century. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, the life expectancy of the average American is now 76 years, down from 79 before the pandemic. Life expectancy for indigenous people has fallen to just 65 years old. That's a six-and-a-half-year decrease since the pandemic began. 
Police in Columbus, Ohio, have shot dead an unarmed 20-year-old black man named Donovan Lewis as he lay on a bed. The shooting occurred just before 2.30 a.m. Tuesday inside an apartment where police serving a warrant, body cam footage shows, an officer shot Lewis just one second after opening a door to the bedroom. Officers then handcuffed Lewis, who died less than an hour later at a hospital. It was the third police shooting in Columbus, Ohio, over the past eight days. And in tech news, an employee at Google says she was forced out of the company for speaking out against a secretive Google project to provide artificial intelligence tools to the Israeli government and military. In her resignation letter, Ariel Koren wrote, quote, Google systematically silences Palestinian, Jewish, Arab and Muslim voices concerned about Google's complicity in violations of Palestinian human rights to the point of formally retaliating against workers and creating an environment of fear, she said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Jackson, Mississippi, an overwhelmingly black city with more than 180,000 area residents who are facing their third day without running water. Officials say the crisis could last indefinitely. On Tuesday, people waited in long lines for bottled drinking water to fill up at tanker trucks full for water to flush toilets and more. When you don't have no water, you know, especially when you got newborn babies. We are seeing the intentional divestment um, in communities that are led by black elected officials. This has been an issue for me since I came down here to Tougaloo College in 1991. I was always told not to drink that water. Um, when I came here to Jackson, it was smelling like chlorine. On Tuesday night. President Biden authorized the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to coordinate disaster relief efforts, quote, to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in Hines County. This came after Mississippi's governor declared a state of emergency for Jackson and the neighboring areas. For the past month, Jackson residents already had a boil water advisory due to problems with the city's main water treatment plant. When recent torrential rains caused the Pearl River to overtop its banks, the plant flooded and shut down, cutting off water supplies. Schools have shifted to online classes. Many businesses are closed amidst the ongoing water crisis. For more, we go to Jackson to speak with the mayor. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, welcome back to Democracy Now! You are in the midst of a massive crisis. Uh, the imminent cause, uh, the climate crisis causing the flooding that has shut down the sewage treatment plant. But the issue of water in Jackson has been going on for a long time. You have been warning about it. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground right now and what you think is the real long-time cause of this? Well, thank you, Amy, for having me again and, and happy to uh, be able to lift up this, this circumstance uh, on your show. Uh, this has been something we've been crying out for more than two years, uh, saying that it's not a matter of if our systems will fail, but a matter of when our systems will fail. Uh, I have described Jackson as the poster child 
of the infrastructure challenges that we see in this country. Uh, and so this is something that, that when the state uh, joined me and shared that they would be bringing in uh, resources, bringing in a team to support us, we welcome that with open arms because we've been saying that we needed the support. We've been saying that we need resources. Uh, and so this is a matter of human rights. Uh, this is a matter of deferred uh, maintenance that has happened over decades, uh, a lack of investment in capital improvements, uh, and, and quite possibly, quite honestly, probably more than a billion dollars uh, worth of, of challenges that have to go into our, our water distribution system. Uh, and so we were sustaining uh, some level of, of uh, improvement uh, yesterday, uh, but the system, true to its form and true to what we have seen, uh, had a bit of regression last night. And so we're struggling to get tanks back up, struggling to be able to restore water pressure across the city. And so we believe that our residents are worthy of a system which is sustainable, are worthy of a system which is uh, equitable, uh, serving all of the residents and not having a disproportionate effect on the poorest communities in South, in South Jackson. And Mayor, I wanted to ask you about the the responsibility of the state government uh, uh, in in this issue, the the state legislature. Uh, Mississippi has long been the nation's poorest state. It's also the state with the highest percentage of African uh, American residents. Uh, could you talk about how the the state has responded in the past to your request, and also the issue of the state constitution not allowing municipalities to tax themselves, uh, uh, have independent taxing authority, and how that affects uh, your ability to uh, uh, remedy the water infrastructure problems. Yes. Uh, it is clear that we're heavily reliant on, on the state for, for many of these resources, uh, not only because we don't have the independent ability to tax ourselves, uh, but because even the federal funding that is sent uh, to or intended for cities like Jackson, uh, the conduit that, that it comes through is the, actually the state of Mississippi. Uh, and so it's no secret that I have been consistent uh, in lifting up that, that all parties that have, uh, that have ability, uh, that have uh, license or authority uh, to help with this problem need to lean in and, and uh, be a part of the process of, of its correction. Uh, but today, uh, you know, I have to focus on the priority of the coalition that is being built now uh, and have to be optimistic in, in that coalition. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that there is a time to discuss, you know, why we haven't seen this coalition form sooner uh, to discuss just how far we're going to go. Uh, but I will say that, that I am at least delighted to see that, that there is discussion about moving together at this point. Uh, I don't believe that that we should have taken uh, this time to get here, uh, but I am, you know, going to move forward in a spirit of operational unity, focusing more on our common ends and objectives than our differences at this time. And what is what are your hopes for what the federal government might uh, possibly do to assist the residents of Jackson in this crisis? Well, I hope that they, they bring the, the full um, arm of their authority. Uh, understanding that this is a crisis, this is an emergency, uh, that the events that uh, sparked the, uh, the the pressure being reduced on this occasion were directly associated with the, the flood uh, that we recently experienced. 
but, you know, it's well documented even amongst uh, federal agencies and, and uh, leadership uh, all the way up to the White House uh, that this is a persistent problem. You know, I've had the opportunity to walk with Administrator Regan here in Jackson, looking at the, the multitude of challenges we have with respect to our infrastructure. Uh, on the occasion of his visit, uh, we had low water pressure challenges in South Jackson. We were visiting a school in South Jackson and the children had to relocate. Uh, I've been with him in, in D.C. and heard him give his stump speech about, you know, the direction of the EPA. Uh, and I've heard him include the city of Jackson in that speech. Uh, and so we're looking for, you know, every available dollar, uh, every available partner. And we're, we're working with a coalition of the willing uh, in order to restore dignity to our residents. Uh, this is part and parcel of a cycle of humiliation that far too often our communities have to suffer from because we aren't given the sustainable development resources for the quality of life that they deserve. I wanted to uh, and, and, go ahead. Uh, I, I just want to ask one other thing to the mayor. What about the President Biden's infrastructure legislation that was passed? Has any of that money been earmarked uh, for Jackson and for its infrastructure needs? That money has has not yet um, has not yet landed in Jackson. Uh, and, you know, what I had what I can share is my discussions uh, with the czar, uh, Mitch Landrew, uh, along with my discussions with uh, Administrator Regan, were both consistent in that they had money intended or they had Jackson in mind uh, with the allocation that they expected to go to our state. Uh, and so we just have to make certain that it, it goes from its inception point all the way to, to the final destination, uh, which is right to our water treatment facilities, which is towards you know creating a, a sustainable uh, an equitable system for our residents. Mayor Lumumba, you've attributed the water plant breakdown to the recent flooding of the Pearl River. But Republican Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves has said years of poor maintenance wore down the facility's pumps. This is him on Monday. At the end of last week, I was briefed by the uh, state health department on the discovery that Jackson's main water treatment facility has been operating with zero redundancies. The main pumps had recently been damaged severely about the same time as the prolonged boil water notice began, and the facility was now operating on smaller backup pumps. The city government was unable to give them a timeline for when the facility would be back in proper operating condition. That's Republican Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. You declared an emergency in Jackson on Monday. Uh, he followed on Tuesday. Uh, before we let you go to deal with this catastrophe in the city, what do you see as the long-term plan? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, uh, I just want to be clear that we've been lifting up these challenges uh, since about 2018. Uh, I, I came into office in, in 2017. Uh, and so we've been going to state leadership to speak to these challenges ever since that, that point in time. Uh, this has been a, a, a combination of uh, accumulated challenges over the course of time, more than three decades worth of challenges. Uh, and so uh, I liken it to a vehicle. Uh, if you're changing the oil regularly, if you're uh, if you're rotating the tires, if you're giving it its, its tune-up, uh, then it's likely to function better. 
Uh, but when that has not taken place over the course of such a significant period of time as what has happened in Jackson, then you end up with larger, uh, more, uh, more, you know, more substantial threats to your to your vehicle and to this system. Uh, and so we've been crying out to the state for the support. Uh, there has been an equity in, in what we've seen in Jackson versus other communities. Uh, and so we've been lifting that up. But at this time, what our focus is, is a, is a focus on a coalition that works together, a coalition that is arm in arm, uh, making sure that we work towards the residents of Jackson and making certain that we can conclude uh, these challenges. We need uh, an, overall, an overhaul of our water treatment facility. Uh, in all actuality, a new water treatment facility would, would be in order uh, because the water treatment facility we have uh, has never functioned op optimally and has had challenges from the moment that it was created. Uh, and so I think it is imperative uh, that we work towards automizing or automating, I'm sorry, automating uh, portions of the plant, the feed systems, uh, weatherizing of the plant. Not only do we have the challenges, you know, stemming from the flood on this event, uh, two Februaries ago, uh, the, the freezing temperatures of a February storm led to the debilitation of the plant at that time. Uh, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, we have hotter summers, colder winters, uh, and more precipitation uh, annually. And so this is all taking a toll on our infrastructure. And so on the short term, uh, we're looking towards, uh, you know, the state's resources, uh, you know, in human capital and, and you know, physical uh, capital improvements to the plant. And long term, we're looking towards the combination of state and federal funds uh, to make overall adjustments in the plant. We've been investing the money that we've had. We've invested $8 million towards a larger, uh, a, a larger uh, pipe just to service the South Jackson community. We've invested in a structure over our membrane side uh, and, and the weatherization process to make certain that we aren't crippled like we were in February. We've invested in so many improvements in our water treatment plant, but we can't go it alone. We don't have a billion dollars worth of resources to make this happen. Fortunately, we have the partnership uh, and the collaboration of agencies like the U.S. Water Alliance and Kellogg that are working in conjunction with the city of Jackson so that we can put forth and prioritize that which has already been outlined by our order of consent with the EPA that identifies numerous challenges within our plants. We know what the challenges are, and that order outlines it. We need the resources to actually fix those challenges at this time. Shokoyan Tarlamumba, mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, we thank you for being with us. This is Democracy Now! As we look at this crisis of climate, class and race coming together, one of the poorest states in this country, a city that's over 80 percent African-American, Jackson, Mississippi. More than 180,000 residents are on their third day without running water. We're talking about water to drink. We're talking about water to flush the toilet. We're talking water to bathe in. Officials say the crisis could last indefinitely. For more, we're joined by Kaliakuno, longtime activist, co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson, an organization that works to democratize the economy and empower the black community. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Callie. Um, <clears throat> if you can elaborate on what the mayor has just shared with us, the description of what's happening on the ground and how people are coming together 
on the ground. You had a resident that we just played before we spoke to the mayor saying that the state is defunding majority black cities and mayors. Well, first, uh, it's a pleasure to be back, uh, Amy. Um, let me describe a little bit of where uh, I am. I'm currently uh, in New Orleans. Um, when uh, the mayor issued um, the warning on Saturday for folks to evacuate, um, we took the situation very seriously uh, and started organizing on a regional level uh, our allies uh, to start being able to deliver water to the city of Jackson. Uh, as the mayor noted, you know, uh, we are not new to this uh, situation, unfortunately. Uh, so we could anticipate uh, that we were going to need some resources uh, independent of what the state was going to be able to offer uh, and deliver. Uh, and in our case, not being in, at least in our immediate community, not being reliant on uh, the timeline, particularly of the state government, to deliver vital resources to our community. Uh, too often, uh, they've declared you know, emergencies and then not delivered or not delivered in a substantial amount of time to actually help people on the ground. Uh, so our organization, along with several of our allies throughout the Gulf Coast, started mobilizing over the weekend to start gathering up resources to be able to deliver to the people of Jackson uh, in their time of need. Uh, and it is it is a little bit worse than what I think what we anticipated. Uh, we've been under these boil water notices, I think, as the mayor noted, uh, for months. Uh, we've been under many of these on a constant level for years. So there's been a level of awareness and preparation that many people uh, in Jackson, uh, you know, have been attuned to for some time. Uh, but now that we've kind of reached this acute phase of, of system failure, um, we are going to be a bit overwhelmed. Uh, and I think the the commentator that you had just talking about the situation, uh, you know, being untenable, that is really what it's going to, to be like, I think, for many in our city for weeks to come. And, Kali, I wanted to ask you, uh, but this infrastructure issue and the racial inequities, it, uh, un, un, it reveals across the country. Several years ago, we had the situation in Flint, uh, subsequent to that, there was the crisis in Newark's public schools uh, with infrastructure, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. lead pipes in the water. And now we're looking at Jackson. All of these cities are majority black cities. Uh, could you could you talk about this situation of the inequities that occur in our system right. when it comes even to infrastructure? Well, number one, it's not by by happenstance or coincidence. Uh, what we are experiencing now is, is literally just the crumbling of the empire's infrastructure. I think everybody needs to be clear about that. And that this has a long history. I think as the mayor and other commentators have noted, um, if you really want to trace a lot of this back, it goes back to, uh, I would argue, to the 1950s and 60s uh, with the so-called urban renewal uh, programs and the massive subsidization of the suburbs, which facilitated white flight, uh, out of many of these major cities, Jackson being one of them, uh, and with that uh, went major capital flight. Uh, and that has continued uh, with very chronic programs of divestment and, and uh, deindustrialization in many cases in most of the cities like Jackson, uh, which has just left crumbling in infrastructure. And every city that you, you mentioned, Newark, Flint, Detroit, uh, we can go on. 
this story, this development, which was facilitated, uh, you know, by programs which were developed on a national level uh, right after World War II, is what brings us to this uh, uh, dimension of the crisis. We also have to talk about, you know, being honest and and, and really linking this to the deeper issue of of climate change uh, and the the threat that is it is clearly now posing all over the world. I mean. Uh, just listening to your introduction, we're, we're talking about uh, droughts, you know, uh, in, in East Africa. We're talking about record flooding uh, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, we have severe drought going on in, in uh, Western Europe right now and the Western portion of the United States. We have to look at this. I would encourage, you know, the audience to look at all of these dynamics uh, uh, as a whole. And Jackson is just, just one of these kind of acute areas with this systemic policy around uh, uh, just totally subsidizing the petrochemical industry, you know, for, for decades now, almost a century, but particularly the United States for 50 years, is the other part of what has been driving this particular crisis, creating all of this uh, systemic change. And, and if we look at, you know, what's being proposed on the broader level, on the one hand, you have uh, the federal government pushing for more drilling, pushing for more, you know, kind of false solutions, as we would say, uh, in the climate justice movement, uh, but but have this aggravated uh, uh, infrastructure crisis uh, everywhere, which is not adequately being addressed, in part uh, because of the politics uh, and where the Republicans are at on being insistent on denying climate change uh, and being insistent on more privatized solutions. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, what a, a lot of the Democrats uh, and the liberals are proposing are also a set of false solutions which are based upon kind of these market dynamics, which really don't work and just continue to aggravate the inequities and inequalities that we are facing in a, in a city like Jackson. And Kali, we only have about 30 seconds left, but there have been attempts in the past to privatize the water supply in Jackson. Could you mm-hmm. talk about that? Well, my fear, uh, uh, you know, the, the mayor talked about this coalition and uh, I also applaud that that finally the governor has kind of come to his senses uh, and is offering some uh, some support. Uh, but we need to be mindful of of what they're offering. Uh, I would argue from the social movement perspective, uh, in this effort to kind of pay for uh, half of the 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 cost of one of the facilities, Jackson has two of one of the facilities. While it it will help, it's kind of just putting a band aid. On the situation, and I have a fear, uh, which I think many people in our community share, that the offer of aid is a prelude to a larger conversation of how do you fix the situation. And their offering is going to be to either privatize it because they're going to make an argument that Jackson does not have the capacity or capability to manage its own affairs, which is totally false, or they're going to try to regionalize it which is the other option of, of kind of a threat of divesting Jackson of its critical resources and autonomies uh, that has been on the table for many a year. Kali Akuna, we want to thank you for being with us. Co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson, of course, will continue to follow this uh, climate, class and race catastrophe that has converged in Jackson, Mississippi, where the population no longer has access to clean drinking water, to water, to flush the toilet, to bathe, to use at all.
Next up, we go to Iraq, where dozens were killed in fighting after powerful Iraqi cleric Muqtad al-Sadr announced he's resigning. Armed supporters have now started to withdraw. We'll go to Baghdad. Stay with us. We worked real hard to get this far. We were catching the bus before we bought the car. You see, give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish, and he'll eat forever. Give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish, and he'll eat forever. Gotta get political. I'm political, I gotta get wrong, but can't hold my own. So this government needs to be overthrown. Brothers with the AKs and the 9Ms need to learn how to correctly shoot them. Save those rounds for a revolution. Poor whites and blacks bum rushing the system. But I tell you, ain't no room for gangsters. Cause gangsters do dirty work and get pimped by mobsters. Some fat Italian eating pasta lobster. Brothers getting jailed and mobsters on the coppers. So you say you want out of the ghetto. First the political prisoners must be let go. And you must let go of your power master. My liquor got you like this, your powerful master. You'll never get out without Give a man a fish by Arrested Development. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to Iraq, where dozens were killed in fighting Monday after the powerful Iraqi cleric Muqtad al-Sadr announced he's resigning. The Washington Post reports that, quote, for 24 hours, loyalists transformed the country's government, Green Zone, into a front line. Unquote. At least 30 people were killed, hundreds more injured. On Tuesday, al-Sadr gave a speech calling on forces to withdraw. The fighting has now mostly stopped, and protesters supporting al-Sadr's rivals also withdrew from their demonstration outside the government zone. Meanwhile, the Iraqi prime minister, Mustafa al-Kadimi, said Tuesday he may vacate his post. Well, and I warn that from now on, if they want to continue to stir up chaos, conflict, discord and strife and not listen to the voice of reason, I will take my moral and patriotic steps by announcing the vacancy of the position of prime minister at the appropriate time, according to Article 81 of the Iraqi Constitution, and hold them accountable before the Iraqis and before history. The formation of a new Iraqi government has been paralyzed since parliamentary elections in October, where al-Sadr's Sadrist movement won the most seats but failed to win an outright majority. Al-Sadr's supporters had occupied the Iraqi parliament since late July in an effort to block lawmakers from choosing a new prime minister. For more, we go to Baghdad to speak with Yanar Mohammed, president of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, the bloodletting in the last day uh, has been horrifying. Uh, it looks like it has subsided now. It's happened in the green zone, where the Iraqi parliament is, the U.S. embassy, other embassies and government buildings. Can you talk about the significance of what's taken place, who is fighting, and what this means for the future? The significance of it uh, reminded us that the powers that came the, the uh, political parties that came to power are in reality just militias who cannot talk politics, can, do not understand democracy, do not understand what it means to step down once you did not win. So they, the only way they could resolve this problem was to go down to the streets to invade the presidential palace and the parliament and in the last day, they took all their machine guns and their heavy machinery with them, and they, they uh, held the 
totality of the Iraqi people uh, in ransom. All of us lost our well-being and we're scared. We ran to our homes. Uh, people bought as much bread as they could to keep it at home because it, it felt like a civil war, like the launching of a civil war. Uh, we were reminded that those who are in power uh, do not care about the well-being of the people and that they are using every single way possible just to gain power. They don't care about people's lives, about our well-being. And, um, and a piece of information here, it did not stay only in the green zone, the clashes. The clashes were uh, around the city of Baghdad and in the government. Uh, not in the governmental buildings, but in the centers of the political parties in the other cities, cities also. So for almost 24 hours, we had to live again the situation of war where we were all in terror, helpless, sitting in the homes and glued to our televisions, just waiting for a word to come from the leaders of trouble for us to go back to our normal life. And the strange thing is that those who started the demonstration that led to the clashes, to the killing and to the bombing around the city, nobody dares to challenge them or to speak any bad word against them. It's as if I'm living the days of Saddam Hussein all over again, where everybody is scared of a single person and nobody dares to say anything. Uh, it's a, a terrible situation. I, I know that in the West, everybody watches series, but the series of terror that the Iraqi people are living in are endless. Since the occupation, since Bush the father, then Bush Jr., and then the sectarian war, and, and now this, uh, we do not deserve to live in, in this situation. I'm sitting at work now, and we don't have electricity. We had to bring our own gadget to make electricity. After 19 years, after occupation, we still do not have electricity. We had to dig a well to be able to water our garden. Uh, Iraq, although it has the resources that can provide money for three or four countries in a rich situation, but uh, we are living in... Um, poverty. We are barely making ends meet. And uh, those who are in power, and they did not come to power by accident. Iraq was planned to have a theocracy in power, uh, part of which is supported by the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the other part is local, but is a cult-like medieval power. And those two powers both have very strong militias that took all their machine guns, guns, their mortar bombs, and they began to shoot each other. And once some of them shot over the American embassy in the green zone, the CRAM system uh, took the mortars and, and shot them back at the city from where the sh shots came. So we lived one day of total terror. Uh, we had flashbacks of what we've been through in, during the first American occupation and then the second one. And it seems uh, Iraq is meant to be living in, in these situations for a very long time ahead.
And, you know, Mohammed, could you uh, supposedly uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, party won uh, the largest number of seats, but has not been able for months and months to form a uh, an actual uh, uh, government. Could you talk about why there's been so so much difficulty through the legislative route to, trying to uh, form a government that can begin to address some of the needs of the Iraqi people? The government, the way it was put together in the first place and which dragged on and on during the next rounds of uh, uh, elections, it was meant to um, to gather a big majority in order to form the government. And that big majority, the number of seats that he needed to form the government, he couldn't get. Uh, and in the same time, um, these two biggest Shi Islamic Shia factions have had a history of fights among each other. So had they been together, the government would have been um, in place now and working and functional. But because they cannot reach to uh, an agreement, Muqtada al-Sadr, uh, when, when he joined his efforts with the Sunni blocs, and the Kurdish blocs, uh, the um, the party from the Erbil, we call it the party, it's the KDP from Erbil, their number was not even enough to put together a government. And once he, uh, he couldn't, uh, this man cannot take no as an answer. Once he couldn't put together the government, he ordered, and I say it, ordered all his party or, or, or all his slate members to withdraw from the government. And with no discussion at all, he just thought of it at night and he told everybody to step out of the government. And once he stepped out of the government and it was time for the others to put the government together, he still couldn't take no for an answer. And he took all his followers into the streets with a demonstration for a whole month. And when it didn't bring any results, uh, because the judiciary uh, ruled that uh, the government can still be formed with the others, um, he started fighting. He, he, he says something new every other day, and uh, nobody dares to challenge him. Uh, I mean, and, it's a terrible situation. And he's quit before and come back. And to be clear, this is fighting between Shia militias. But I wanted to ask you, we only have a minute, and I wanted to ask, um, while a lot of attention is being put on the U.S., the first anniversary of the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, the U.S.'s longest war, um, the U.S. has thousands of troops in Iraq, what, something like 2,500, uh, uh, in this 19th year of the— um, occupation of Iraq, U.S. occupation. What role does the U.S. play in this? And that's where we'll end. They do not play a strong role. The, there's a general feeling that the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran and all the pressure from both sides is being uh, implemented in the lands of Iraq, because the Nouri al-Maliki's bloc, who is fighting against Muqtada al-Sadr, is a proxy of the Islamic State of Iran, while Muqtada al-Sadr and the blocs around him are on the other side. Muqtada al-Sadr's group is meant to be like local, but his other groups are, are supported by the American side. So we are being sandwiched between the two, and it doesn't seem that there is uh, any solution anytime soon. 
You know, Mohammed, we want to thank you for being with us, president of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, speaking to us from Baghdad. Coming up, as President Biden calls for an assault weapons ban and more funding for police, we'll talk to UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly. The um, publication of the 20th anniversary of his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. The book has just come out. Stay with us. In the region of the forest where the march here dwells, I sit and write scriptures by the old wishing well. Collect all my notes and sail a boat back to Berkeley. Try to feel my vibe because my style is rather earthly. Some say it's whack, but I ain't trying to hear it. As long as what I do contains my soul and my spirit, it's cool. I use this as a rule of thumb. I take a dip into the pool of radiance until the food is done. Sliding on the floor like a fat ignoramus. Your soul eight million, but you still don't entertain us because you're fraudulent. I have no time for a jester. Go take your place beside Uncle Festa because you are an uncle too. You are an Uncle Tom. And DEL and hieroglyphics gonna drop the bomb. Sunny Meadows by Dell, the funky homo sapien. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In a speech Tuesday in Pennsylvania promoting his Safer America plan, President Biden called for an assault weapons ban and for the hiring of 100,000 more law enforcement officers nationwide. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. Well, on this last day of Black August, we spend the rest of the hour with UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly. He's just published the 20th anniversary revised and expanded edition of his book, Freedom Dreams, the Black Radical Imagination, with a new foreword by poet Aja Manet. In it, Kelly writes about organizations, activists and artists who are turning freedom dreams into a practice, from a noun to verb. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, as we— do this show today from the uh, flooding of an American city and the lack of water access in the majority black city of Jackson to the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq to the calling for more funding for police and an assault weapons ban. Your thoughts? OK, let's let's begin with where you started. That is um, this uh, plan on the part of, of Biden. We knew this was coming. It was his campaign promise, adding 100,000 more cops. Uh, it echoes the Clinton-era crime bill. Um, this call for community policing, which, you know, we, have, we can't be fooled. Community policing grows out of broken windows policing, which involves targeting black and brown residents with surveillance, harassment, using predictive technologies for policing. And think about what would have happened had— $37 billion went into uh, things that people need to make them safer, like housing, health care, environmental protections, jobs. Um, but let me just say one, this is not a glimmer of hope. This, I'm not making a case, you know, but I'm making a case that, that despite the Biden people's opposition to defund, there's an element of it that was a response. That is, you know, $15 billion of grants for non-police first responders for mental health crises. Let's see how this is going to turn out. I'm not sure, but 
clearly um, movements make a difference. And this is part of the, the, the argument of freedom dreams, that movements do make a difference, especially when you think beyond the immediate needs to something bigger. And Robin Kelly, can you talk about what is uh, what are the 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 what's new in the uh, edition that you put out now in terms of the revisions? Clearly, a lot has happened uh, in 20 years. Your book first came out in uh, in the aftermath of the 9/11 attacks and the beginning of the Iraq War. Since then, we've had the the Black Spring of 2020, with millions of people all around the world after the, rising up after the killing of George Floyd. But we've also had the rise of what I like to call the diversity, equity and inclusion uh, uh, industry, uh, DEI, the DEI industry that has sought to co-opt the radical nature of this uh, this movement that arose in 2020. Uh, Talk about those things and also what you feel is the most important new aspect of uh, the new edition of your book. Okay, well, that's let, let me let me start by think, you know, talking about what where we were and where we are, you know, I mean, I should say that the inspiration to put out this new edition uh, was spring 2020. I mean, the fact is the, the book didn't go out of print. It was continued, continued to sort of exist in, in, in the ether uh, and was, in, you know, was really important among organizers. But let's go back. So on the one hand, back in, the, in, in 2000, 2001, you know, it felt like the Bush-Cheney election derailed a lot of our movements, um, despite the fact that, you know, we witnessed the largest anti-war protest in history, you know. Um, it, and I was in New York City during 9-11, and I remember the Islamophobia, I remember the, the real uncritical celebration of cops as first responders. And keep in mind, this is right after, uh, in, in the wake of the Cincinnati Rebellion, in April 2001, after the killing of Timothy Thomas. This is in the wake of the Amadou Diallo protests around the acquittal of the cops who killed, again, these two, uh, both cases of unarmed black men. Um, and, 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 you know, Cincinnati looked like Ferguson, you know, it was like a precursor uh, in many ways. We're so we're out here protesting Bush era militarism. Um, that militarism continues to escalate despite the claims that, you know, there's an end of the war on terror. You know, your last guest talked about this continuation of, of these wars. Um, and, you know, militarism continues to this day. Sometimes it takes on the form of, you know, um, uh, U.S. support for Israeli occupation of Palestine. It takes on this, the form of the expansion of of troops in Africa, you know, through AFRICOM. So, so a lot of what we were fighting for then, or fighting against, still exists, still persists. And um, so I think that's important. Uh, the other side, you know, in thinking about the whole attacks on critical race theory, um, it's an interesting uh, uh, problem because what I can say briefly is that the latest wave of intellectual McCarthyism, this sort of attacks on on CRT is not really attacks on critical race theory. It's attacks on liberal multiculturalism, um, and it's interesting that, and it relates to freedom dreams, and that the backlash is a backlash to a movement and not necessarily a backlash to, say, President uh, Obama. It's driven by white heteropatriarchal nationalism, which was there in in 2000, 
persists in the throughout the 21st century, uh, and it uses the racially coded language of anti-wokeness. Anti-wokeness, DeSantis' use of that term, is not an accident. It's supposed to signal something. But it works. It works because it convinces a large segment of the country that the real threat to their lives are non-white people, queer people, um, and our history. You know, this is a real existential threat. Not privatized healthcare, not climate catastrophe, not crime to the state, not global recession, not food and housing insecurity, not the threat of war with China, not economic policies that make the rich richer, you know, like this chips bill, so that rich people could buy black and queer art <laughs> as a fund right wing causes. So, you know, in many ways, if there's a, a basic sort of lesson uh, that Freedom Dreams continues to, to sort of convey and that the movements that erupted since then uh, have actually taken up and expanded, it is that we don't have the luxury to uh, just fight for reform. It, we can't survive that way. We've got to fight for revolutionary change. Um, that's the only way we'll survive as a planet. And the only way to do that is to think beyond the immediate needs and concerns and crisis that are right in front of us. You have the Detroit activist and philosopher, the late, great Grace Lee Boggs, um, really at the center of your book, Freedom Dreams, um, so deeply involved with the black power, labor, environmental justice and feminist movements. Before her death at the age of 100 in 2015, she was a frequent guest on Democracy Now! I wanted to turn to her in 2010. People are beginning to say— the only way to survive is by taking care of one another, by recreating our relationships to one another, that we have created a society over the last period in particular where each of us is pursuing self-interest. We have, we have devolved as human beings. Talk about why Grace Lee Boggs' activism, politics, and philosophy is so important to you uh, and so central in Freedom Dreams, Professor Kelly. She is the center of the book. She is the, she's the inspiration, in many ways, um, for Freedom Dreams. You know, we go back to, like, 1992, and she started this debate with me about, you know, um, you need to read Dr. King. Uh, you need to pay attention to uh, people's needs beyond protest. Like, how do you build the society we're trying to uh, trying to establish in time, in the present, as opposed to just continue to fight for reform? And so we had this ongoing debate, and she forced me to rethink some things. Uh, even after Freedom Dreams came out, she had more critiques, of course. Uh, and so I end the book. Uh, with an epilogue that has a very substantial section on what was what is being built in Detroit right now as a result of the Boggs Center and the work that uh, Grace and Jimmy Boggs did. And so that's a really important part of, of the story, saying that, you know, freedom dreamers uh, are basically, you know, building that society of creating new human beings, new ways of being together, that don't fall into the same old trap of, 
you know, the Marxist stealing, you know, Robin, seizing state we power. have to end, yeah. but we're going to do a post show and uh, post it at democracynow.org. Professor Robin D.G. Kelly, his new book, 20th Anniversary Edition, Freedom Dreams, A Black Radical Imagination. A very happy birthday to Hani Masood. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.